My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, it has been a while. Uh, I was fairly busy the last weeks and therefore I uh, had some delay in recording and editing the episodes. But today I'm back and I have Ferenc Lexo, uh, an assistant professor at Maastricht University, as my guest. Um, he wrote uh, a comparative historical analysis on the history of the Hungarian Jews uh, for his uh, D- PhD dissertation. Uh, he's one of the first sco- scholars actually who uh, investigated this, this niche. And therefore, uh, we have an elaborate discussion uh, on that. Uh, besides that, um, Franz also touches upon his strategy for publishing articles and the difference between academia uh, uh, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Uh, overall, I really enjoyed the talk, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you guys will do the same. Uh, enjoy. Uh, hi, Franz. Uh, welcome to the the show. Uh, can you briefly introduce yourself and maybe say a few words on uh, what you're also busy with at the moment? Uh, hello, thank you so much for, for the invite, Sam. Uh, my name is Ferenc Lotto. I am an assistant professor in uh, European uh, history at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at uh, Maastricht University. And I also teach at University College uh, Maastricht. It, I guess it's no secret that that's where we first met. Uh, I am a historian mostly of Central uh, and Eastern Europe and of the 20th century. Okay, um, and um, since the the show is PhDs for Dummies, um, you you mentioned your uh, hist- historian on comparative history. Is that also where your uh, your PhD was about? Uh, that's right. I, I studied the comparative history of Central and Eastern Europe uh, as the the PhD program that I entered at the Central European University back in two thousand four. Uh, and I wrote more specifically uh, on the intellectual history of uh, Hungarian Jews, and I was relating that uh, topic very closely to the history of German uh, Jews. Okay, is there like a specific uh, reason why you chose for that uh, for for the history of of uh, Hungarian Jews? Or uh... right, that's that's a very good question. You know, when I started uh, my PhD, I thought I would write an urban history <laughs> rather than just an intellectual history of Hungarian Jews. Uh, and I wanted to do uh, a study on Budapest uh, in the interwar period and during the Second World War. And I thought from the very beginning that I would put a strong emphasis uh, on the on the uh, Jewish, so to say, side or the Jewish aspect of my story, uh, since Jews uh, constituted about one fourth uh, of the urban population uh, of Budapest uh, at this time until until the Holocaust. But as I as I moved along and as I started researching um, uh, the topic more uh, uh, through the empirical sources. I realized that there was really an almost endless amount of untouched uh, sources relating directly uh, to Hungarian Jewish intellectual history. There were dozens of uh, journals that were published at the time, dozens and dozens of books that were published by Hungarian Jewish intellectuals, and practically nobody has ever really uh, dealt with them. So it took me uh, long enough and the materials were rich and interesting enough to do a PhD uh, just on that. And I neglected, so to say, the other aspects I originally uh, also wanted to cover. Uh, so you kind of found, uh, uh, like maybe niche is the wrong word, but you kind of found this this part of Hungarian history that was not yet covered or uh, and. If I understand correctly, you found it was like your, maybe not your duty, but it, you thought it was a nice opportunity to to uh, to record on this and uh, to to publish stuff on that. 
Exactly, exactly. You know, see, my sense was that this was in many ways a taboo uh, subject uh, for okay. a long time. Even people who wrote about Hungarian intellectual history with a focus on debates around Jews uh, and debates about what used to be called the Jewish question at the time, very often uh, didn't really take into account Jewish perspectives. Uh, so, you know, we, we had a very famous book uh, around the time I started in my PhD called uh, The Jewish Question in Hungary by a, a, a person called Janos Jurtyak. Uh, and he basically said in his uh, annotated bibliography that he excluded uh, all the sources that Jewish people wrote in kind of explicitly Jewish uh, uh, journals or Jewish, uh, you know, publication for Jewish publications. So basically there was this sense that, uh, that this was kind of unfairly neglected. I had a strong feeling that uh, these voices very much belonged to the uh, national conversation, and it was it was an injustice uh, not to have studied them uh, appropriately uh, until then. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the only thing that's striking for me, maybe, is that you you mentioned it's a taboo in in uh, kind of was a taboo in Hungary, mm -hmm. but yet you you studied it at uh, the Central European University, which is located in Hungary. Mm -hmm. So, w was there like support, or were people hesitant for for you to study that or to research on that? Right. Well, that's a very interesting question. So, the Central European University had a specialization in Jewish studies. Uh, which was connected to several departments. You could enroll in it uh, both from history and also from nationalism studies, which are separate uh, departments over there. And I never quite chose the specialization, which again has a, a history of its own, because I thought that, you know, when you do Jewish studies specialization, uh, all your courses are given to uh, to you. You have yeah, to yeah. basically go through uh, just those courses and you don't have the freedom to to opt for, for other ones anymore. So I basically, I, I stayed with the, uh, with the history uh, program. But having said that, I was very interested in this and there were quite some experts uh, dealing with it. But the whole subject is, of course, something that really came, if you wish, uh, from the West. Uh, the Central European University where I studied is, of course, an English-speaking a school which uh, was issuing yeah. both uh, Hungarian and, and US-based uh, uh, degrees. And, uh, and there was no comparable program at any of the Hungarian universities, even though there was a so-called Assyrologia and Hebraistica, which is to say Assyrology and Hebraistics or Hebrew studies uh, at the main uh, Budapest University, but that wasn't quite uh, Jewish studies in the modern sense. So really, this was in a way an exceptional place. And, you know, my main supervisor, who was Viktor Karadi, and we may uh, wish to talk about the relationship and, and so on uh, later on, but he was, he was somebody who was very interested in the social history uh, of Jews in modern uh, Europe. Uh, this was really where most of his research was focused in a way with the main question, what made uh, Jewish people so upwardly mobile uh, in modern Europe, right? How did uh, Jewish people enter uh, the professions? How did they enter middle-class positions and so on? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. I think, um, did it help for you that you spoke, or obviously it helped that you spoke uh, Hungarian and that you could unravel these uh, primary sources? Um, how important in that sense are the primary sources to, to, to discover and to unravel um, well, as you said, the, how the Jewish people um, uh, got to these positions in the middle class. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So for, for my supervisor, you know, the main sources were always uh, official state records uh, on, on occupations and on kind of occupational profiles. So he was always very interested on in how uh, uh, the position of certain people changed from one generation to the next, right? He was trying to yeah. compare mobility path of different uh, groups. 
And basically, his main finding was, which is, I think, very interesting, uh, is that um, Jewish people used education always to, to progress in society. So they actually overinvested, so to say, in education as compared to other people. They, they always wanted, so to say, their sons and often also their daughters to have a better education, to have higher than education they, yeah. than they themselves. And that this was not the case uh, for most Christian people. So if you look at Hungary, and Hungary is a very uh, spectacular case, and for most Christian people, education was to reproduce your social status. Right. So to basically yeah, yeah. If, if, if your parents had, I don't know, high school degree, then you, you were very likely to have that and high nothing more. Too, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. Well, for me personally, you know, for intellectual history, uh, the, the, the primary sources were absolutely crucial. So I could never have written uh, my study uh, without really finding it. And this was my other. So I mentioned Janusz Djurjak earlier, this big monograph on the so-called Jewish question in Hungary. And the other important resource I had, there was an annotated bibli- bibliography of Jewish publications. And that's where I found that this was the most decisive uh, moment for my PhD, I have to say. I found through that bibliography that there were dozens and dozens of uh, publications that were still being released uh, in the years of the Second World War. And when mm-hmm. I, when I okay. saw this, I realized that Hungary is a very peculiar case because the Hungarian Jewish community, you may know, this was the last one uh, to be destroyed uh, during the Second yeah. World War. The main a phase of deportations. It happened in 1944, and 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 you know, it, of course, the, the persecution lasted until the very end. But it but it but it started somewhat later than in other countries in this way, and that meant that even while all the other Jewish communities were persecuted on the continent, the Hungarian Jews in Budapest and in other places were still publishing. They were still publishing That's- their journals. They were still publishing books. That's really interesting, actually. Like, I didn't know that, and so then you have like a unique perspective like a one-of-a-kind perspective on on also the war side right did they publish on on exactly. the war itself or exactly so this this was my starting point that i realized that you can track this process of persecution and how jewish people experience and also interpret what is happening during the holocaust and also you know kind of i had the first journal i dealt with started publishing in 1936 so just a few mm-hmm. years before yeah. the second world war started and but I mean, the the, yeah. the the Nazi reign at that time already kind of started, right? Like exactly. the, the anti-Semitism. Exactly. And that was my other major point that, you know, the Hungarian Jewish intellectual elite was, uh, they spoke Hungarian, uh, clearly enough, they wrote very much in Hungarian, but they wrote nearly as much in German. You know, the, the, the Jewish community of Hungary, uh, which kind of emerges in modern times, uh, well, they spoke various languages, but but definitely by the late 19th century, almost every educated person would have known German and Hungarian and used both. And that also meant that they were very closely connected to the German Jewish community. For instance, yeah. if you look at the main institution for the training of, of rabbis, all, all people who could acquire or who could assume the, the function of, of, of rabbi uh, in Hungary, they had to be trained at the seminary uh, for the Neolo community, but also they had to get a university degree uh, at, in Budapest, otherwise they couldn't have qualified. And uh, as part of their rabbinical training, they always tended to send people to Breslau, which was, of course, a German city where they had the major such institution within Germany. Uh, so basically, there was a very strong intellectual connection and intellectual exchange between Germany 
and Hungary. Uh, and this made it even more interesting and even more important uh, to study this subject because after all, and this might come as a surprise, uh, but the Hungarian Jewish community was actually larger than the one in Germany. I mean, Hungary is a much smaller country, of course, uh, but but the, the size of the Jewish community was was actually was actually was uh, larger. Yeah, yeah. There's a really interesting like um, well, pathway to to your P, like your your ending PhD topic because as you said you started with something kind of different and then is that also like in your PhD you kind of find your way and you adjust your your scope or your focus of your research. Yes, well, you see, this was, of course, so to say, the crisis of my project. Yeah. That I had a very ambitious plan. I wanted to do a lot. And I enrolled in my PhD at a very young age. I was not yet 22 when I got accepted, okay. which is very young. Very you know, young, I think yeah. actually too young, to be honest. <laughs> in in yeah. retrospect, I would say, you know, I did a three-year bachelor here in Utrecht. And then I went for a one-year master. And in that year, you know, I think I was a pretty good student, I suppose. You know, I, I yeah. just applied to the same place and I got accepted, which was a bit of a surprise because I was together yeah. with people who were five years older, seven years older, you know, who looked to me much more mature, in a way better trained. But I was, I guess, a kind of, you know, talented young person. I, I spoke English quite well and so on. And so, so I got into the PhD as just two people from my MA group. And, you know, yeah. it was it was a funded PhD position and I was living in my hometown. So I didn't really, I, I just accepted it, right? I, I could have applied to the to the West. It, I could have come back to either here to the Netherlands or maybe to the UK, could have gone maybe to the US. And yeah. that really very much determined my path on the long term that I ended up staying in Budapest for those years. Um, but the point is I enrolled very young and I was quite ambitious But I didn't really know how to do uh, research for, you know, years and years. And I think nobody quite knows who's starting a PhD. You know, it's so much larger and so much more demanding than anything you've ever done before uh, that, that this was my problem. So I, I, had, I had an overblown expectation uh, towards what I could do and what I'm going to end up doing. And at some point I had to restrict it. And that was really the key moment. I had to convince my supervisor, look, I can do a very good PhD on a much more narrow topic, on a much more in a much more focused way. And once we agreed on that, uh, then the rest was quite easy. Then I knew exactly what were the steps and how I would get there. So basically, the, the main thing is to focus down uh, on, on something that you're excited about, but also you feel like you're comfortable and there's enough literature or sources on. And mm -hmm. from there on, it's like... Basically, well, it's said very easily, like fill in the blanks, kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I mean, you know, it, it was really a question of, of being able to plan your weeks and months and so, right? I knew, okay, I have to read this. I have to read that. I have to read this and that. And I, I had really a, a, a detailed plan about every single yeah. step I have to take. And I took copious notes. I have dozens and dozens of notebooks that I was actually writing it by hand because <laughs> I was oh, convinced okay. at the yeah. time that writing by hand is, is better, better for, yeah. for, for, for pro processing information. Well, uh, I agree, actually. Like I wrote all my notes by, by hand. <laughs> right. Wow. That's, that's yeah. great to hear because very few people do that. You know, when I tell this to most people, people are like, oh, wow, you're such an old fashioned guy. But I think it actually really, I think it actually really helps, you know. I think the computer yeah. uh, makes us feel that we are processing, but but in fact, we're not paying not, as yeah. much attention. Uh, so oh, anyway, so that's that's how I did it. And, you know, of course, I have all these notebooks, which are now fading a bit. So it's, it's a bit <laughs> sad, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still part of history, right? Your notebooks now are making are, uh, are the history. 
Exactly. Um, I, I tend to show that actually to people who are who are about <laughs> to enroll to PhD. If if they are asking me, I always tell them, okay, look at these notebooks. This is this is what it takes. You know, this is the amount of yeah. labor because I have like twenty five or twenty six of these notebooks which are full of notes. And I said, okay, okay look guys, this is what it takes, right? I mean, okay, you have years for it, so you know you have time, but but you really have to you really have to to work for it. <laughs> you need to yeah. you need to be aware of the the the, the workload. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You mentioned that you were uh, surprised that you got accepted in the PhD position in Budapest. Uh, in hindsight, do you maybe regret not going to one of the more established Western universities? Yes, you see, this is an extremely complicated question. And to be honest, I'm not sure. Because on the one hand, there were many years when I thought, okay, had I gone to a really strong PhD program at a top university, I would have made an academic career, so to say, much more easily. I, I yeah. think so. You know, if I had gotten enrolled at, you know, one of the Ivy League uh, PhDs, which I possibly could have done, I'm, I'm not sure I would have succeeded. I might I might not have. But yeah. I think I had a certain chance. You know, I was quite young. I spoke good English. I was quite hardworking. Uh, and, you know, I came from a country which was, in a way, interesting uh, for a number of reasons. Yeah, for to study, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, I think I could have done it. And that probably would have given me an easier path uh, in life. Having said that, I think the fact that I did my PhD uh, in Hungary, so to say, within Eastern Europe, gives me a huge comparative advantage because the people I've met came from all these countries that we're studying. And in a way, I know these countries better than, than many Western experts, right? If you're an expert in somewhere in the US studying Eastern Europe, uh, you don't have that, you know, exposure to all these cultures and all these people uh, in a way that the Central European University uh, allowed me to have, because that's really a university which was set up for all the Eastern Europeans you have, right? Yeah. So I was basically yeah. surrounded by people from all these countries for years, uh, and and I think they know their countries from within, and in a way they know them uh, uh, in a way in greater in greater detail and in a sense also in greater depth. So I think yeah, I you know, in, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was about to say, I completely agree. I think if you're having such a, a niche as you, you studied in your PhD, I think it's actually a good thing to study in, in the, the country where it actually happened. But maybe for more mainstream, uh, like general um, topics, it's better to go to these Ivy Leagues because it's not as like um, specific on, on a topic. But I think, yeah, the point you made is, is, is valid. Right, exactly. And, you know, and for me, that, by, by the way, the, the big uh, challenge was to decide which language I want to write this, uh, 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 so to say, in the original version. And yeah. I, I do have a Hungarian book, which I produced based on my PhD, also because it was intellectual history and many of the sources were in a specific language. I really thought it's better if I do the drafts uh, in my native language and then translate which also yeah. was not perfect because, of course, I write better in English when I write it uh, straight in English than if I have to translate myself, right? I think because, you know, yeah, if you translate yeah. yourself from a, your native language into a foreign language... It's always different, yeah. That's very, that, that, that can actually have a very non-idiomatic things in it and, you know, kind of strange expressions. And I wasn't, <laughs> so to say, professional enough yeah. at the time uh, to really realize that it, it would have been probably much better for the English version to really, to really write it in English straight away, despite the fact that then some nuances might get lost uh, from the original. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you mentioned you, you wrote a book on your, uh, based on your PhD, right? Is, was exactly, that like the yes. start of your, of your publishing um, uh, career? Because you have an impressive uh, record of publications, I must say. 
Well, thank you. You see, that was definitely my first book. So my first book, I, I published it at 32, which, you know, you can see quite a lot of time has passed. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, did, I did wait uh, quite a long time to, to release it. And, uh, and then I did an English uh, version, which was actually much more extended in terms of the scope and also the source base. Uh, I did that two years later. I wanted to have a, um, a first Hungarian book, and I, I, I published it in 2014, because that was the 70th anniversary of the Holocaust in Hungary, and there was a lot of attention, and it was much yes, more easy to publish. Like, the... Yeah, yeah so, so then it was kind of the perfect timing uh, as well for yeah. to publish your book, I suppose. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think I could have never received as much, uh, you know, uh, responses as at that point. Yes. And do you feel like the responses from your home country do they give you more um, motivation or energy than than let's say responses from from uh, Western scholars? Uh, uh, I I would say you know it's 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 not it's not really an either or. Uh, I write quite a lot uh, in English, and of course I write mostly in English nowadays, uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I get responses from all sorts of people, including Hungarians who write in English, and including people from all sorts of places. And I have to say, I find the international discussions much more interesting. I think the problem with small countries like like where I happen to to come from is that at some point you figure out who is whom, you know, who thinks what, yeah. and yeah. and then it becomes much more predictable and in a way boring what's going on in terms of discussion. You know, when now I, I, I'll give you just one maybe funny example. There was a debate a few years ago among historians, and I was telling my friends, you know, I could have written that debate on my own in advance to some extent because I knew exactly who's going to say what <laughs> to each other, right? Because you kind of, you, 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 you kind of know, you know, who are the 10, 15 famous historians, you know, you know, who's the liberal, who's the conservative, who's the nationalist, who's the this and that. Yeah. And, and you can sort of guess uh, who's going to say uh, what, because you've read them a number of times before and, and, and so on. And, and, and I think that's, in a way, I find it, I find it uh, very limiting. So I, I, I yeah, must so say I'm much like more having... interested in the, yeah, so. No, it's like having a sit down with your friends in the bar, right? You know what everyone is going to say. So <laughs> in a sense, exactly. for me as well, it's more interesting to kind of open up the conversation and to have different perspectives on it. Uh, uh, and I Absolutely, mean, I absolutely. Different, so different perspectives come with globalization uh, of, 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 of academia. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, the course I teach here on Eastern Europe, for instance, which you also uh, took uh, recently, it's also for me the brilliant example to, to try to understand what these things mean to somebody who may come from the Netherlands, may come from, you know, former Western Germany or what have you, or, or yeah. France, Belgium. You know, this is extremely interesting because, you know, then you suddenly start to perceive things from a different angle. <laughs> and that's intellectually much more stimulating, I think, than, than to be stuck, so to say, always with the same assumptions. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that also ties in with your your main research interest, right? The comparative history. history. It's I think mm -hmm. it's also the comparative perspective uh, on 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 business or, or, or events that happen. So in that sense, I think comparative is maybe always better. Like it gives a more nuanced view on on, on events. I would say. Yeah, yes. I mean, you see, the funny thing is that history has been written uh, so often just in a national frame. So, so the, yeah. just like many other professions, but 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 also for history, you, I think you can say that it has been nationalized, and so much of the history writing is still today is national, and that I think is intellectually again quite uh, quite narrow because of course European countries and European national histories have been intertwined in so many ways. And you can really only understand uh, them when you relate, relate, you relate them uh, to each other. 
Actually, we're just uh, planning a book with a friend of mine about the global history of Hungary. It may sound like a funny project, but you know, there are all these books about the global history of the Netherlands, global history of France, and so on. And we are also thinking, yeah. you know, many of the things we consider, you know, kind of so quintessentially local actually may come from other continents, right? I mean, even the paprika or, you know, whatever you are. Right? And, <laughs> and, and this is... And, <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, of course, if you look at the, the ingredients, you, you realize that, that this is, of course, a global story behind it, how yeah. something like that becomes a national dish. And this story hasn't really been written yet in Eastern Europe, right? I mean, in Western Europe, I think many people are very aware of this, also because of colonialism and the post-colonial kind of present. But in Eastern Europe, this is something that I think will come as a kind of big surprise to a lot of readers. So we want to do a kind of popular book on that to really change the perspective, to say that actually so many things we, we care about happen to come from very far away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, on that note, um, do you think that it's easier for you as an uh, academic in, in Western Europe to find historical niches in Eastern Europe, uh, which you can research because of uh, uh, the nationalist nature of, uh, of society in Eastern Europe? Right. I would say, you know, for me, it's really what I have in a way always wanted to do, because I always thought that the history of Eastern Europe belongs to the history of Europe, simply. And yeah. you can only really understand what's going on in Europe today if you are also aware of the eastern half of the continent and that this needs to be more prominently done also at Western institutions, right? I think Western institutions tend to focus very strongly on Western experiences. And that's what I want to sort of offer a certain corrective, which I think is a useful corrective. I think students tend to understand uh, what I'm, you know, what I'm getting at (laughs) and what I'm trying to do. And and at the very same time, it it also enables me to do the regional uh, coverage, which, as you said, it's not so common within the region, right? So actually what I'm offering is, at least in this course, and again, I teach several other courses as well, but what I do in my Central and Eastern Europe uh, course is to really say, okay, we have to look at it on the regional level and we have to compare the individual countries. And this is this is rarely done in the West because of the lack of expertise, but it's also rarely done in the East because, again, countries yeah, don't yeah. like to put themselves next to their own, <laughs> next to their next neighbors, right? So yeah. in a way, I think I, I find that, that this approach uh, is intellectually valuable and it also is politically quite, uh, quite constructive, actually. Is that then also, would you say, your main... Um, uh goal in, in, in academia or your main aim of in uh, educating uh, students in bridging this uh, uh, this conversation between East and West? Right now, I would say that has emerged as sort of my, my, my one of my absolutely main priorities. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say whether that's going to be the case in a number of years from now, because, you know, I'm, of course, I'm, I'm the, the kind of person who gets easily bored. <laughs> so I always, <laughs> I always like to move on. And, and now, now I feel I'm, I'm in a quite comfortable position. I, I know what I'm doing. I know how I'm doing it and I know why I'm doing it. But I also feel that maybe in a few years I would like to do something quite different. And like for many people of my generation, of course, there's always this challenge of the global, right? So what does it mean to them, you know, trying to understand yeah. China or India or what have you, where also you have, you might call it a civilizational difference, right? So again, I'm an intellectual historian by training, so it fascinates me a lot to think about how even many of our assumptions are very much Western, or you may call them somehow influenced by Christianity, monotheism, what have you, and that in other parts of the world, this is not the case. So you really, to re- in order to relate to them, you really need to think a lot further and a lot harder. So I, I, I might try to go into that at some point. Again, it depends a bit on 
on on uh, circumstances and how life how, how, their life takes me, so to say. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Uh, again, but also I think um, it's funny to see that even though the the topic you just uh, no, uh, mentioned is completely different from what you're studying now, but uh, I noticed that still there is this comparative component in it, which comes mm -hmm. back in kind of everything you you studied or, or want to study in a sense. So I think that's very uh, uh, funny and uh, and we're uh, we're mentioning. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned that's, that's that you, you 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 mentioned that you published in in uh, English and in uh, in Hungarian. Um, how do you, did you get started with like getting your uh, publication career, so to say, started? Because that's a, a thing that a lot of uh, PhD uh, candidates or maybe PhD alumni are struggling with, and they can't really mm -hmm. find their way into to uh, publishing. Right, right. Well, that that is again a question. I would say I never had problems with getting published. I don't know. Maybe I was I was too insistent or <laughs> sent it to the right kind of journals. But I yeah. I must say I, I almost always got uh, published where I wanted to get published. Uh, it's also of course there's always the big debate, and I know this because I have friends from uh, from the US who have done uh, PhDs over there, and for them the most important thing with publishing is to go for the most prestigious uh, outlet, to go for the most mm -hmm. prestigious journal, and never ever yeah. place an article in, in a place which is maybe just mediocre or, or average or what have you. And, yeah. you know, coming from Eastern Europe, I always had a bit of a different strategy. I always wanted to be part of different, you know, discussions and communities and so on and, and get engaged. Uh, and, and so I published in a lot of different places. Uh, but I also think I sort of built up a, a, a certain portfolio, if you wish, of what are the kind of places where I, where I really want to be published But I think, you know, the kind of people will read me, uh, who will care about what I have to say. And I think that's very important. So you have to somehow be able to relate your uh, interests and your research to, to certain, certain journals uh, and, you know, kind of see, you know, who are, the, who, who are on the editorial board, you know, what kind of special issues they have. And, and once you know that, once you make that connection between your, your own research and specific journals, I think you'll get there. Uh, for example, if you do PhD, uh, you'll get published uh, fairly easily uh, if you've done yeah. your work. So it's 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 mainly preparation. So you need to know your audience and know the, the journal you're publishing. But I also think the thing you said about maybe publishing in mediocre uh, journals is um, and just accepting that and by like by publishing more and more articles there. I mean, as you said, you build up your portfolio, which automatically makes you way more attractive for bigger journals, I would say. Yes, I mean, it's it's exactly this debate, you know, because the funny thing is that you can get a job at a super prestigious university in the US if you've published one or two articles, but they think that uh, that uh, you'll be able, you have the potential, you have the kind of knowledge yeah, and the yeah. skills uh, to get into them later on and, and you will fly high. Right. So there is that I think there is this very mm -hmm. strange uh, in the US. It's all about prestige, it seems to me. Right. If you yeah, have to I, go I to agree. the best yeah. universities, you have to Ivy publish Leaks, it. Yeah. And exactly. And in Europe, it's not like that. Right. So you can actually make it from the margins, so to say, uh, if you're yeah. if you're good enough, if you're dedicated. And that's also a bit my story. You know, I mean, I, I come from a good, uh, you know, kind of intellectual family, but I come from the, the periphery, if you wish. Uh, but, you know, you can you can sort of get into things uh, one, one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I agree. So then, in a sense, it's yeah, it's it all depends on what you want in the end, then, and depends where you want to pursue your uh, your academic career. You mentioned that you both studied and lectured in the Netherlands and Hungary. Uh, so I can imagine you 
experienced both systems. Uh, how do you feel about the differences between the two systems uh, regards to uh, academia? Right. I think the academic cultures are very different. So, so the, the Netherlands is, is it's a very professional system. It's very goal-oriented. Uh, it's also about having a lot of skills and knowing how, how you do things. Uh, Hungary, in a way, academia is still very close to what you might call the intellectual life uh, in general, right? So people read a lot. People love to discuss. It's not so much about, about you know, publications or, or, you know, getting grants or what have you. It's not so much about making things happen uh, in the world. It's about somehow understanding things and so to say, knowing things and being able to, to argue about them. This is what many academics prefer to do. And I think here in the Netherlands, there's really, in a way, it's, it's really much more embedded uh, in, in a goal-oriented kind of pragmatic society. And I think the Dutch academia, as you may know, is extremely successful uh, exactly in this way, that you know, people get a lot of grants, uh, people get projects done, uh, and they also combine a lot of things uh, in a very efficient uh, way. And, you know, what, what I find very striking, especially about uh, Maastricht University, uh, is that it's also heavily bureaucratized and there are a lot of expectations from a lot of um, different uh, angles. So when I came here to, to teach, you know, what really surprised me, to be honest, is that we are expected to perform uh, in a lot of different dimensions. And so, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching a lot. I'm also supposed to be publishing. Uh, winning uh, grants, I'm also expected to popularize, and I'm also supposed to do management or, or administration-related <laughs> tasks. So these are five okay. pillars uh, of the job, and this is really a lot. Yeah. So if, if you consider how much time then you end up having for, you know, let's say uh, your own research or what have you, not to mention, you know, family uh, and other hobbies and so on, uh, then it's really a lot. And, you know, that's, of course, the big debate uh, of the moment uh, here uh, whether the workload shouldn't be reduced at least a bit and whether people shouldn't uh, specialize uh, with certain profiles, right? Can you be a great academic yeah. if, even if you don't publish, but you're a brilliant teacher? Uh, and I think you can, uh, and also the other way around, right? So some people who are very good at research uh, may want to teach less. And I think the current system doesn't really allow that uh, that much uh, right here. Yeah, so kind of you're arguing for that maybe you're just specializing on the things that you like and uh, or are best in, and in that way, if mm -hmm. like maybe the organization can become more efficient in a sense, I would say. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think we can talk for, for a lot longer, but um, at a certain point, we have to kind of uh, wrap it up. So I have uh, one um, last question for you, uh, Ferns, um, which mm -hmm. again ties back to your PhD. Um, and uh, it's a question I ask every uh, um, every person that is on the show. And it's, um, what is the one memory of your, um, your PhD adventure that you cherish the most? Well, that should be an easy one because I met my wife <laughs> during my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's a quick and easy one. <laughs> okay, so you're you're getting your family together. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a very nice memory. I swear, I hope for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's a very nice note to to end uh, the the episode. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Ferenc. Uh, I really enjoyed the oh, uh, the insight in 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 the uh, comparative history and in your experiences. Thank you so much for all these uh, great questions. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's been really fun. So, so thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, guys, uh, that was Ferenc Lexo. Uh, I think it was very nice that he was uh, so enthusiastic about his, his field of research. And he actually gave me a very interesting insight in, in this uh, unique Jewish case. 
I think actually that cases like these are the main reason why I wanted to make this podcast in the first place. Because normally uh, I, and I also think the majority of you guys, would have never read or heard anything about this case. Even though now um, we, we see that it's a unique perspective on the Nazi regime. Um, if you guys want to read more about this or other research of Ferenc, uh, I'll leave a link to his research gate in the description. And for now, uh, thanks for listening and make sure you tune in to uh, next week, episode two.